This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. If all you know about archaeology is Indiana Jones, then you will learn a lot more about it and perhaps some more realistic people in Trevor Shearston's The Beach Caves. Welcome, Trevor. Hello, Jane. How are you? And welcome to your listeners. Thank you. Is archaeology really that fast and furious treasure hunt that we see in Indiana Jones? No, it is very slow, very painstaking. If we're back in the era of beach caves when it starts, we're sort of operating in quarter-inch sections going down and down and down with a trowel, you know, a very fine trowel, a very sharp trowel, shaving the ground something will catch on the trowel, then you very, very slowly work around what it is that's caught on the trowel. Is it bone? Is it stone? What is it? Is it just a tree root? And so it is very slow and painstaking. So you've set this book back in 1970s. Whereabouts is this archaeological dig happening? The first dig where the students go uh, with uh, Ray and his wife, Marilyn Herr, is on the Clyde River, and that's a fictional site on the side of the Clyde River in in um, State Forest, which has never been, uh, never had people walking around it very much. And a couple of fishermen find the remains of stone huts, which is just an eye opener for anyone who's just been expecting that all Aboriginal people were nomadic, wandered around their their territorial domain, and really moved from place to place built temporary shelters. And so this is a a shock to even archaeologists to find a village in every sense of the word. So that's on the Clyde River on the south coast of New South Wales. And the Clyde runs out of the mountains between the coast and Canberra and enters the sea down at Batemans Bay. Because it's so close to the actual coast, Alad Ray, the professor, walks from his site on the Clyde River overland through State Forest to see where he comes out on the coast and he's finding stone from the quarry, silkcrete from the quarry that's been found beside the Clyde River. He finds that stone all the way through at these campsites, through all the way to the coast where there's a, a lake called Teapot Lake and the beach is called North Teapot. And that becomes the next archaeological site because it's obviously where people from the Clyde walked when they wanted to spend time beside the, beside the sea. And, of course, they're eating a whole different range of foods beside the sea because they have, they're, they're getting um, you know, crabs, um, but especially mutton bird, because, which washes in at a certain time of year. And you can just go and pick them up off the beach so you can feast on mutton bird. And you've given us sort of a, a feel of what, what's being looked for. Now, you've mentioned... Professor Alad Ray, and he's he heads up this university university faculty in Canberra. His wife, Dr. Marilyn Herr, she's also at the ANU, and both of them are supervising honor students. And both these students think that they might get a thesis out of what's happening there. So it's Susan and Annette. Now these two young women came together as students, but that competition to be top student, has moved into a friendship. So how does this friendship flesh out? It always remains competitive. 
uh, in a sense. Sue is far more uh, sexually experienced than Annette, who's still a virgin. This is why both of them are interested in, in the attraction she starts feeling for a fellow student on, on that dig. But Annette is her equal in every way, intellectually and in her interest in, and knowledge of archaeology. And Alad Ray has actually singled out Annette as the person of the two that he has chosen as his honour student, and Sue is the honour student of his wife, Marilyn Herr. Now, I thought it was interesting that they actually went into a fire pit, and that's where they did the original dig, because, you know, I thought, but won't everything be burnt? But, of course, that's where the evidence comes out. Uh, Most fires were not hot enough to do more than char bone, and when bone is charred, it actually preserves it. So the remains of animal bones are found in in the remains of hearths and fireplaces. So Mm. that's where bones were thrown. And that's where they they then, the evidence of that bone remains then for thousands of years because um, it is then preserved by having been charred. We know Annette is sexually immature, but she knows a lot about animal skeletons, but she also doesn't know how she's going to feel if she finds a human skeleton down there. Aboriginal people came to a fish trap at the end of the beach and they netted it and they caught fish. It's still an Aboriginal beach. It is an archaeological site, but it's still a living Aboriginal site. They are the source of the information about this clever fella, which most whites have just dismissed it as a myth, or they've dismissed it as just a way of trying to keep whites from doing anything to the beach. So therefore, as far as whites are concerned, they've invented this clever fella, Okay. Well, it turns out that they didn't invent him. They we've ha- they have known all along that he was buried there. I did find out about this clever fellow from a guy called Mr. Gorman. Now we talked about Brian Harper, who came to this area as a young child, and he was a bit concerned about Mr. Gorman, and he actually warned the young women about being alone. With Mr. Gorman too. So we have that extra bit of ah, angst there. Anyway, what happens is, as you said, the group splits to two different sites. They find another cave that has drawings, but not fish. So there's an idea that this is actually even earlier. Professor Ray warns against the desire to chase the oldest. So it's it, And you are talking about two completely different eras in time here. Um, The Holocene goes up to about eight to 10,000 years before present. And then beyond that, you're into the Pleistocene, which is in layman's terms, the Ice Age, okay, before the oceans rose to the level they are today. And so the cave is in the Holocene period because the beach was there when, when people inhabited that cave. But the, the other cave, the earlier cave, mm. up on top of the headland, dates from a period when the headland was not a headland looking down on the ocean. The headland was simply a bluff looking down onto a wooded valley and a plain, and the ocean was nowhere in sight. So these people were there before the ocean arrived at, the, at its present level. One way you could find this out is because there were no fish in the paintings, which I thought was exactly. really, very, very yeah. clever, clever um, deduction. 
Anyway, look, the, the reminder about this, it was set in 1970, and this is when 20-year-old males were balloted for conscription. You could miss out by your birthday not being called up. You could defer by continuing your studies at university, or you could defect and be constantly on the run while being hounded by police. By the end of part one in the beach caves, with everyone returning to the site for a memorial ceremony of someone who died, author Trevor Shearston has really seriously built up the academic envy, the romantic jealousy, and how circumstances led to different life choices. So part two is more mystery. How long later have you set part two than part one and why? Well, it's, it's 34 years, and the reason why it is 34 years is because a discovery is made on that same beach which turns a coronial in inquest on its head, which turns all sorts of lives on their heads because all sorts of assumptions that have been made about what might have happened on that beach 34 years previously are completely overturned by what's then found on the beach 34 years later. And without giving away <laughs> exactly what's found or no. too much of what's <laughs> happened here. Absolutely not to do um, that. That is, that is the reason why there's a part one and a part two, because the consequences, oh, it's always events, then consequences, and so many novels are events and consequences, and this one's no exception. I'm going to get Trevor to read from his book, and it's going to be from page 253, please, Trevor. This isn't about archaeology. There's a beautiful passage about people too and how they connect. And this is Annette and her 19-year-old son, Lucas. Annette has decided to write the real story of what she remembers happening on that dig 34 years earlier. So please, Trevor. He's asked what she's doing and what's that. A beautiful old Philscap ledger of your father's I found in his bottom drawer with not a mark in it. So what are you ledgering? A slice of autobiography from about the age of 17 to 21. Lucas frowned, made a mouth. What for? For you, among others. Annette watched him do a double take, then thrown by her weirdness, retreat. Why aren't you using the computer? Because it's not something I can do on a computer. Would you believe I did my whole degree this way? Pretty backward place, the 20th century. He leaned slightly to look past her. That a fountain pen? I hope you're joking. But yours? I've never seen it. Probably not. It's been in my drawer for longer than you've been around. How do you get the ink in? Annette studied his face for even the glimmer of a smile. It was serious. She pulled open the drawer and lifted out the bottle of quaint blue black she'd bought after finding the ledger. Come here. She emptied and refilled the pen, then passed it to him. He emptied and refilled it twice, the second time holding the shaft to the lamp to read the level in the small window. Huh. I'll get you one for your birthday. I think another red-eye voucher. Lucas placed the pen back in her fingers, let her cap it. I'm going to crash. His hug was one-armed and brief, but she contrived to press her face fleetingly to his belly. Yes, you really do get a sense of... Her softness, her evenness. So what has she written in that story? Well, the beach caves 
by Travis Shearston is more than a dip into Australian prehistory. It's a novel of behind the scenes, academic, envy, guilt, and the choices we make. My first books were set in Papua New Guinea. The time I was there from 73 to 76 coincided with a team of archaeologists from ANU. What they were discovering from those drains was fascinating because they're uncovering evidence that agriculture began there 9,000 years ago. People were beginning to use swamps to grow taro and subsist on taro. And that was agriculture. That was the beginnings of agriculture. I got to know the archaeologists there on site. So it was absolutely fascinating. And what I picked up on that that um, translated into the novel was the way they used to argue hammer and tongs about interpretations of what they were finding. It was fascinating. And just being a fly on the wall, listening to these somewhat esoteric to, to, the, to the layman's ears, arguments about interpretation of a piece of evidence or a date and that sort of thing, it was fascinating. And it just gave me a sense of how passionate archaeologists could be about what they were doing and if they're as passionate as that about their beliefs that passion can translate into all sorts of other ways um, that they that rivalries can can grow not that they were in any way uh, rivals they were they were just arguing passionately in an academic way but it was easy for me to then make the jump when I was writing The Beach Caves to see that sometimes this passion could become a bit warped and ambition would, would begin to re- replace passion, if you like. This is a very good book for book groups to read and discuss. Thank you very much, Trevor. Okay, Jan. Great pleasure to have been with you. And now it's David's turn. Evil is as random as genetic coding. That is to say, it's not random at all. We inherit behavioural traits the same way we inherit hair colour. The only difference is that certain traits come out a lot more when nurtured. If this quote from J.P. Pamar's latest book doesn't scare you, the story behind Tell Me Lies will. So, JP, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks for having me on the show again. All your novels in the clearing, Call Me Evie, delve into the psychological and the aberrant behaviour of individuals. And I'm just wondering what the fascination is with this side of people's psyches. One big development, and certainly in psychological thrillers, is uh, really trying to delve deep into the psychological landscape and the realities, you know, the, the, what is usually present um, when someone does, you know, present this sort of uh, profile, the psychological profile. So for me, I think I've just always had a fascination with psychology in general, but I think it's good timing given, you know, how, how much of the market in terms of books that are coming out that are psychological thrillers and because of that volume, I think people want more realistic characters and want a more sort of complete psychological profile. Once upon a time, the thrillers were just, you know, someone who has some sort of unexplained psychotic episode. And, and then we didn't necessarily delve too much deeper into the origins of that. We have a psychologist, Margot Scott, whose client list 
is full of some quite disturbed individuals. Cormac, on presentation, seems to be self-sabotaging. That's the way he comes across, at least. Yeah, correct. I, I wanted to find two or three patients that would be, or clients that would be really uh, interesting. And well, um, so, yeah, so Cormac I, was the f first character, I think. Yeah, and they're all capable of this evil we mentioned earlier. There's Joe, who's been desensitised because he's got to look at violent images as part of his job. And his job, is, of course, is a content moderator on a social media site. Um, and I'm sure you can imagine some of the content that he's exposed to. I mean, I think inadvertently at some stage, everyone is exposed to some level of extreme violence or violent views or abhorrent sort of views. So, yeah, it's, it's the sort of thing that really desensitises um, these people that work in this role and, and they, um, you know, they often will find themselves as a requirement of the work uh, in, the, in the psychologist's um, or therapist chair. And then there's Xanthi, who's into self-harm. Yeah, and, and again, um, you know, this would be probably the most common client that a psychologist would see. I have taken some, you know, liberties at times to, in service of the story, um, but I've tried to be as accurate as I can in terms of how a psychologist would deal with a, a, a client um, like Xanthi because she has a whole host of interesting kind of issues but the most common thing in terms of you know what Margot believes she has is yeah is, is she self-harming um, she's a cutter but of course she's also presents of sort of kleptomania and and she's a pathological liar so you know Margot must take everything she says with a grain of salt but also must consider the possibility that everything she's telling her is true as well but I wanted to explore the, the challenges that psychologists face when they are dealing with a compulsive or a pathological um, liar as well. Now, what is just as disturbing in some ways is Margot's perfectly normal suburban life. There's her husband, Gabe, who's an accountant and very steady. But what's interesting are the two children. July, who's a teenager, 17, and she's experiencing difficulties with relationships that's right i mean i think july is a um it's quite a mature 17 year old you know as far as my own experience goes i certainly wasn't um as mature or grounded as her and she's got a real view of the future in terms of what she wants to be doing in five or ten years time and she's quite ambitious um but of course yeah she is also uh she's had a couple of reasonably troubling relationships which again you know i'd hate to be a teenager in this day and age because of you know social media use and just sort of the way that people meet these days is largely online you never know who you're dealing with and that sort of thing and so she has had you know bad relationship in the past but she's obviously um in this story she's sort of found love relationships can be very destabilizing but the other interesting one is evan uh the son who's obsessed with online gaming, and that introduces us to a whole other reality, which they experience almost as if it were real. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I find it very fascinating um, how far removed people can be from reality when they're playing this game, to the point that they don't see... Uh, they, can, they can barely even conceptualise a person at the other end of, you know, uh, this, this avatar on the screen or this car or this, you know, but whatever it might be, 
is represents a person on the other other end of the the line. So we just I just think it's another way that people are often really desensitised. And I think I wanted to write about Evan's experience and being doxxed and the potential for that. Um, there's something also pretty you know a bit a big issue in the gaming community and the streaming community called swatting you know people find out someone's real address and as they're streaming they'll often call in the police and say call into the police and say you know there's a, some, a gunman loose at this address and then so a swat team will turn up and usually you know while they're streaming everyone can see it because it happens in the background and there's been a number of really high profile cases of this yeah i just wanted to investigate some of the really toxic elements of of gaming, it is a psychological thriller. So, of course, you know, when the gaming element is introduced, I'm sure most savvy readers would realise that has something to do with the story. But, yeah, I just, I guess I wanted to dig deeper into the real problems that presents. Now, as a psychologist, Margot is also vulnerable on two levels. Firstly, her home and her clinic is firebombed. So there's a physical threat and she uh, has to work out who's doing it. And of course, her clients are suspect. But Margot is also vulnerable personally. How close is she, is she allowed to, as a psychologist, how close is she allowed to come to her clients? Again, it's quite fertile ground for storytelling and, and thrillers, is this tension um, that can be present in a psychologist's or a, or a therapist's room, um, it's particularly when there's the suspicion that someone might be engaged in criminal activity. The, the, the ethical questions that arise from this and what they can and cannot say and um, at what point they must notify the police, you know, a credible threat of, of harm, violence. Um, and so, you know, that there's also this other ethical question that I wanted to sort of pose, what if they might be wrong? What would that mean to the, the people involved? So, yeah, it's, it's really funny because this is a, you know, a very professional environment. Um, and so we, you know, unsurprisingly, there's some pretty rigid rules in, in, um, in terms of ethics involved. But Margot is also becoming paranoid because she can look at her clients and think, well, they've got the traits or attributes that would lead them to firebomb my home and endanger my family. So she's just as susceptible psychologically. Yeah, that's right. And everyone, you know, is a suspect, I think. And in, in, in real life, I think in these situations, you know, you need to, everyone needs to be considered. Um, and, you know, there's just this sort of doubt if someone's telling you the truth or not and, I think that sort of heightens the, this kind of tension that happens. And you're right, it's the, as much as this is about the psychology of Margot's uh, clients and patients, it's also uh, at the heart of the story, it's about her and it's about um, her, her psychological profile as well. Uh, and, and, you know, how these events sort of reshape that landscape a little bit and what, you know, what she's prepared to do and, and the lengths she's prepared to go. Yes, she has to protect her family. So can she break these ethical boundaries of a psychologist because her family is in danger? That, that's exactly right. At which point is it permissible uh, morally, if not legally, you know, to take action in the event you, you, you do feel your family's lives and your life is in danger? 
and it depends on, on which the way that danger presents itself, of course. But in this book, I think it's the sort of distant kind of slow burning kind of fear that very suddenly and violently erupts. So yeah, that, that's a, it's a good point. At what point, you know, can we react to that? At what point would we accept a um, psychologist to take her own action? Take her own action, especially given this notion of evil and where it lies and in whom it lies as well. What sparks the evil? What is behind it? What sets it off? So in answer to those questions, the readers and listeners are going to have to go out and get a copy of Tell Me Lies by J.P. Pamar, and it's a Hachette release. So, J.P., thank you once again for talking with me today. Thanks so much for having me on, David. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.